Today, 2.2 billion Christians on virtually every continent, almost one-third of the world's population, are celebrating Easter Sunday. Why? Because they believe that Jesus of Nazareth did not stay in the grave. They believe, as the Apostles' Creed states, that on the third day Jesus rose again, He ascended into heaven, and He's seated at the right hand of God. But here's my question. How can so many people, so many who are thoughtful, who are intelligent, who are caring, who are careful with the way that they live their lives, people who hold down meaningful jobs, people who make contributions to civil society, how can so many people believe that this actually happened? Well, here's another way of looking at that question. Why might you tell your children or your grandchildren or the next generations about an event that is known simply as 9-11? Well, because you were living through 9-11, right? You saw the events unfold on TV. Or perhaps you you were in New York City or you knew someone who was in New York City when that happened. And that event reshaped the world. In other words, it's all about eyewitness testimony. It's all about eyewitness testimony. And because of eyewitnesses, 2.2 billion Christians are celebrating Jesus' victory over death and God's vindication of who he is by raising him from the dead. And Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. If you listen to what Paul's saying, that's a lot of eyewitnesses. A lot of eyewitnesses. So I want to briefly draw your attention this morning to one specific incident involving an eyewitness encounter with the resurrected Jesus. It's recorded by a first century physician by the name of Luke. And he has a gospel named after him. It's the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible, or there's one underneath your seat, it's page 885, Luke 24, or open up your Bible app. It's only going to be in it for just a few minutes, for those of you who have young children. Luke 24. Now, what might you expect Jesus to say after experiencing death and then experiencing resurrection life, being raised to resurrection life? What might you expect Jesus to say after experiencing that firsthand? Possibly, I'm back, or I've come back to tell you that death does not have the final word. But what's interesting about Jesus is instead of making statements like these, Jesus asks questions of the people he encounters. Perhaps for the people who knew him prior to his death, that might have been a way for them to simply identify him because they go, oh yeah, it's Jesus. He's asking questions again. Because the gospel writers record 307 questions that Jesus asked. So rather than dispensing uh, advice like a Dr. Phil or trying to fix people or straighten people out like we see in a lot of kind of the popular therapeutic TV shows, Jesus is someone who go, comes along and he asks questions of the people he encounters. And in this particular story in Luke 24, 
the resurrected Jesus suddenly appears among a group gathered in Jerusalem. If you have your Bibles open, in the first uh, 13 verses, what has happened thus far is that there's two people and they're walking from Jerusalem. They've just seen what has unfolded in Jerusalem with all the horror of the, of the crucifixion of Jesus. And they were followers of Jesus and now they're walking away from it because as far as they're concerned, that event is over. He's dead and they're walking away as people who have lost hope in what they thought was going to be God's answer to Israel's dilemma. And so they're on the way to Emmaus about eight miles away. And if you read the story, they are, they are joined by this stranger and they don't know who he is and they're, they find out that he really doesn't know about what's taking place in Jerusalem, at least from their impression. And he begins to then talk to them and tell them how everything that happened in Jerusalem was a fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then they stop and they break bread with him, they eat with him, and it's in that moment of breaking bread that their eyes are open and they realize that the resurrected Jesus is in their midst. And the text t- says that their hearts are burning within them. And they turn right around and they head back to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story here in verse 33. Look at the text with me. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. So they're frightened and they think that they've seen a ghost. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened thought they saw a spirit. And then Jesus speaks to them to calm their fears. In verse 38, he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then it goes on to say, And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then he says to them, do you have anything to eat? He says to them, do you have anything to eat? And it sounds, you know, at face value like a question a teenager might ask upon arriving home from school. I'm starving. (laughs) Do you have anything to eat? What's in the refrigerator? So his disciples respond by feeding him. They give him a piece of broiled fish. Someone humorously suggested that all this rising from the dead works up an appetite. But what's really going on here? Well, eating in front of his disciples is a tangible way to demonstrate that he is real. Jesus isn't a ghost. Ghosts don't eat. Jesus is real. His resurrection body is real. So when Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, he's saying that Jesus is the first of many who will follow. In other words, all who are in Christ, all who found life by trusting in Jesus alone for that life, all who are in Christ will get their bodies back. Just as Jesus got his body back, so all who are in Christ will get their bodies back one day. So just as I fall asleep each night and I awaken in the morning to an embodied existence, one day I will fall asleep in Christ. And in that phrase, I'm using the biblical metaphor of death. I will fall asleep in Christ and I will be awakened by Jesus to resurrection life in a body. No floating on clouds like a ghost. No harps. 
And no answering questions to St. Peter to get him to let me into the pearly gates of heaven. That is nonsense. That is not found in the Bible. Instead, the future is about resurrection. It's about new creation. And it's begun with Jesus' resurrection. It's begun with His resurrection body. And it's begun with the resurrection life that He offers to us. You know, what's interesting is if you talk to your friends these days, a lot of them talk about being spiritual. It's popular to talk about spirituality. Not religion, but spirituality. People want to be attentive to the spiritual side of life. But when Jesus asks, do you have anything to eat, it's a reminder that Jesus is not interested in our spiritual side of life. You listen to me? Jesus is not interested in our spiritual side of life. He's interested in our whole lives. The lives we actually live, our embodied existence. Jesus is interested in that. You see, Jesus refuses to be contained in a box that we label spiritual. He is Lord of all, and he's interested in the daily stuff that we experience, no matter how mundane it might feel to us. You see, he knows our lives. He knows what it's like to have an embodied existence like we do. He knows what it's like to live the life that we live. He's not distant. He's not, he's not distant. He's not removed from our daily experience. He's not out there. He's not away from there. He's not just some distant deity like the Greek pantheon. But he wants to be present in everything. Whether it's our having coffee with a friend this week or our going out and having a giant celebration like we're about ready to do in a few minutes. He wants to be present in all those details because he is familiar with our life and he wants to be part of our life. As Jesus said in John 10.10, he came to give us life and life to the full. And that means, friends, that resurrection life begins now. To be in Christ means that resurrection life begins now. We don't wait until we die. Listen how Michael Patz puts it. He says, what's the big deal about the resurrection? It means light beats darkness. It means life beats death. It means justice beats evil. It means cancer is going to bow. It means genocide is going to crumble. It means poverty's days are numbered. It means God hears your prayers. It means you can break addictions. It means you don't have to be a slave. It means rage shall not be your master. It means the abuse of your past will not define you. It means it's not too late for you. Because... Because Good Friday means his goodness trumps my badness. He became intimately attached to every ripple of my pride and deception and violence and hatred and doubt. He knows it better than I do. And it is finished, covered, deleted, exhausted. And this means you really can be forgiven. It means God's grace is stronger than your iniquity. It means God's capacity to fix you up is infinitely greater than your capacity to screw you up. You deserve wrath, he took it. You deserve death, he beat it. You deserve a curse, he became it. You deserve a trial, he endured it. You owed a debt, he paid it. Resurrection Sunday means Good Friday worked. The empty tomb validates the bloody cross, and it means we've probably underestimated Jesus. Because if he can beat death, he can beat anything. Which means your marriage can be restored, your family can be reconciled. It's the confirmation that yes, what feels too good to be true is true. What seems impossible is possible. It means the wages of sin really is death, but Jesus defeated death. 
And all the dominoes are falling from there until one day all things become new. It means the night has been judged by the dawn, which means you can stop striving to create a better religious flashlight. Just open your blinds. The eternal sun has risen and the darkness can't even comprehend it. The same light that exposes evil reveals beauty. You can hope again. You can love again. You can look for beauty again. Let there be light. Isn't that beautiful? Praise God. And here's my appeal to you today that if you've not yet received this resurrection life, Jesus offers it to you freely. That would be, I mean, if you hear nothing else from me, listen to that. That if you've not received the resurrection life that Jesus offers, receive it by simply placing your trust in him. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about life. I'm talking about receiving life from Jesus by placing your trust in him as the one who wants to give life. He is the author of life. He's the author of resurrection life. And this new life is received, it's not achieved. So any thoughts of having to climb a ladder or become better or clean up your act before God will accept you, that's false. Jesus has already taken care of all that. All you need to do is simply place your trust in him. And for those who have received this life, this new life is worth celebrating every day of the year. We are Easter people. We are Easter people. And we share in the new life that begins now. Eternal life begins now. But here's the other piece. Jesus has invited us to partner with him. He's invited us to partner with him so that we might bring this life to the world. So that through us, Jesus' life might flow so that other people might experience this life. They may be drawn to this life and they may say, I don't know what you have, but I want it because I see how it transforms you. And I want whatever you have. And that's what Jesus wants to do through us. And my friends, that's why we're taking the celebration outside. Because this life is meant to spill outside to others. Thanks be to God.